Exploration Radio is proudly sponsored by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. The 2020 AIG Mentor Program is now open for registrations. Whether you are a mentee looking for some career guidance or networking opportunities, or an experienced geoscientist looking to give back to your community, now is the time to sign up. It is free for students and mentors, with a small fee for graduates and members. You need to be an AIG member, but the application process is easy and pretty straightforward. And also remember, becoming a member of the AIG means you're also supporting things like this podcast. For more information on the mentor program or the AIG itself, visit aig.org.au. That is aig.org.au. Registrations for the mentor program close 31st March. In 2013, Sam Walsh, the then head of Rio Tinto's R&O division, was on vacation in Singapore. He got a call. The company was looking to him to become the next CEO of Rio Tinto. At that time, Rio Tinto was in dire financial conditions. Adopting a growth at all cost strategy for years before had put the company under immense financial strain. It could have fallen over if things continued that way. This was the company that Sam inherited. And three years later, he had turned it around. Everyone says making changes in big companies is like turning around the Titanic. Well, Sam figured out a way to do just that. He joins us this week to tell us about how he did it. So come join us and let's explore. Welcome to Expression Radio, Sam. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I guess the reason why I was interested in having this conversation with you is obviously you've had quite a long career in the mining and resources industry. Uh, you've done quite a lot of different things, but then you also had another career before. And I guess we wanted to dig into some of the uh, the things you've learned along the way, the challenges you faced, what would you do differently? That's kind of what we wanted to to have this discussion today about. No, that all that sounds, sounds good. Cool. So I guess arguably, professionally, you'd probably be best known for your stint as CEO of Rio Tinto. Yes. Were you always interested in joining the mining or resources industry? Well, I think it was actually the other way around. I, I was busy making cars at Nissan and uh, I was approached by John Ralph of CRA. Uh, initially, I just thought he wanted a chat. Okay. But uh, when, when I met with he and Nick Stump, who ran the aluminium business at that stage, it came clear to me that they were headhunting me to join uh, CRA and, and mining. Anyway, the interview went really well. We, we spoke about a whole broad range of topics mostly associated with manufacturing rather than mining. Mm -hmm. And we got to the end of it and I said, well, look, I'll, I'll let you two sort of work out whether you want to progress this. And John says, no, no, you misunderstood. When I rang you, you had the job. This was just to convince you. <laughs> this so, is just to make sure they still wanted you after the end of that conversation. Well, no, 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 it was the other way around. <laughs> that, uh, that It was to convince me that I should join them. Anyway, of course I did. My, my first role was actually running... Uh, CRA's aluminium foundry business. It was uh, a, a, an aluminium wheel foundry down in Tasmania at, at Bell Bay, a pilot plant in Melbourne and a pilot plant in Lewis, Kentucky. Okay. So uh, it was quite a diverse business. Of course, a big step down from sort of running uh, Nissan's manufacturing in Australia, but it, it opened a door. Mm -hmm. And uh, with, within a year, I was running uh, all of the foundry businesses, including the iron and steel foundries in Phoenix, Arizona and Santiago in Chile. So I guess the obvious question is, what skill set do you think they were trying to headhunt by trying to bring you into the business? I mean, did you have an interest of going into mining? Like, was that something that was on your radar at that time? 
Oh, certainly. I mean, one one has to admire a mining company like Rio Tinto or, or BHP. Admire in what sense? Oh, admire in, in terms of, of the value add, the, the scale, the investment, the profit. Yep. You know, all, all of those areas are, are very interesting. When you work in automotive, it runs on the smell of an oily rag. I, it really is seriously, seriously tough to get the investment dollar. At Rio, you, you had the money, obviously if it was a business case, to invest in the business. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I did right through my career at, at Rio Tinto. Yeah, okay. So in the automotive industry, is it harder to then get kind of the capital expenditure to grow yes. the business? Is yeah, that... no, look, it, it's incredibly competitive. Okay. And uh, th- there are so many sort of levels in, in the distribution channel that basically the car maker themselves, you know, they may be selling a car for 30000 but you know, if they're making 1500 out of it, they're, they're doing really well. Do you think that has anything to do with the fact that one's unionized and the other isn't? Like, are they fundamentally structurally different in that sense? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, it, it, it may be right in terms of the productivity mm-hmm. that a mining company is able to achieve. It, it's certainly not salary or wage rates because we, we actually we, we paid over, over the top of, of uh, uh, what awards we're, we're offering. When you think about the mining industry, when you think about the cycles mm. that it goes through, you do often think that there are these moments of capital restriction where the, the expenditure goes down in line with kind of the commodity cycles. So I find it a little bit interesting, your view that actually mining is a lot more capitally open in that sense that there is more money for you to do things. Yeah, if you look at the time that I was running Rio Tinto Iron Ore, mm-hmm. I mean, we invested 20 billion dollars in expanding uh, the operations of mine, rail and port, but also implementing a whole range of other initiatives that, quite frankly, in the car industry, you you would have found basically impossible to do. Hmm. Okay. So were there things that you could take from the automotive industry to mining? Yeah. uh, I mean, mining, mining like to think themselves as being different to manufacturing, but they're actually not. Okay. Uh, It's sort of... uh, it's it's people, it's machinery, it's capital investment. Uh, there's a lot of similarities. I can remember when I first started talking about Six Sigma mm-hmm. and uh, I was talking to somebody at Rio Tinto about it and, and they said, oh, that had never worked in mining. And, and I said, oh, 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 I see. So when a haul truck is running from the shovel to the ROM pad to, to the primary crusher, they all do it. At exactly the same speed, <laughs> with exactly the same amount of material, you know, in the truck, and 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 the person said, "Well, no." So I said, "Ah, oh, so you're saying there is variation in mining?" And he says, "Yeah, yeah, of course there is." I said, "Well, that's what Six Sigma is all about: reducing the variation, mm-hmm. standardizing the processes, having processes in control and capable. It, it's all of those things, and of course it applies." to mining just as well as to, to manufacturing. I can remember I sent one of my black belts to Kennecott Copper, mm-hmm. Salt Lake City. They're having trouble with one of their processing plants and they couldn't work out sort of what on earth was going on. Our black belt uh, went in and obviously analysed the hell out of it and uh, within a couple of days he said, oh, do you realise that you've got a sequence of pumps that aren't on, they're not operating? They had no idea and obviously that was a solution to, to get the plant back operating optimally. 
but it, it took the discipline, rigor, analysis of Six Sigma to be able to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And of course, Six Sigma grew right across the business then. So I want to go back to a point that you made before where people in mining didn't think it was manufacturing, but you coming in from a different perspective, you obviously saw that the makeup of it operationally was very similar. Do you think that's something that we often do in mining, that we think we're quite unique, but in fact we may not be that unique in a lot of ways? Yeah, no, look, I, I think you did right. I mean, if you look at, at the changes mining is undergoing at the moment, I, I think it's people recognising that technology, innovation, adapting, adopting Mm-hmm. From, from whether it's agriculture, mining, aerospace, whatever, that, that's, that's really, really important. I, when I took over the operations at, at uh, Rio Tinto Iron Ore, uh, I took my executive team to the US to have a look at best practice there. Mm-hmm. I said to the guys organising it, I don't want to go to any mining company because I don't believe that there's anything that we can pick up that we're probably already doing. And uh, so we went to universities, we, we went to Schlumberger, we, we went to uh, Dell. We went to a range of companies to, to see what, what they were actually doing and mm-hmm. how they were actually using technology and innovation. And coming out of that grew the remote operations centre that Rio has out at Perth Airport, uh, the automated trucks, the automated trains, uh, the automated drills, you know, a whole range of, of programs that basically started elsewhere, but we were able to pick it up and, and adapt it or adopt it and use it. Uh, it's quite funny. The, the oil companies where we got the idea of, of a remote operations centre from, the oil companies ran their offshore uh, operations sort of one at a time remotely. Mm-hmm. Well, they're now coming to have a look at Rio Tinto's remote centre because it's controlling 15 mines, 1,700 kilometres of rail, three ports, the power system, the, yep. the sewerage system, the water system, the works, all from Perth and all 1,500 kilometres from the, the site locations. I guess that's the point I make is that I think sometimes we as an industry have this attitude that you know we're really unique so we can't learn something from other industries but in reality i think maybe don't understand the other part of the equation as well that we could actually export out some of our expertise to other industries as well which would undeniably probably make them better i i think you're right i mean i have to laugh when when uh, i hear of uber and, and google and and tesla and others looking at automated vehicles <laughs> uh, because basically rio tinto has been operating automated haul trucks uh, it must be 12 years now, and, and moved billions of tonne of material. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it, it, it's all basically operated using GPS coordinates. You know, people think, oh, there's somebody with a joystick down in Perth sort of driving the trucks. Uh-uh. No, they're not. It's all programmed as to, to what the truck needs to do, even to the extent of varying the, the travel down the haul roads so that they don't dig ruts because they just absolutely reproduce what you tell them to do. And uh, you know, the example that I talked about earlier about uh, Lean Six Sigma, I mean, you, you're getting much, much closer to that with the automated trucks than, than you ever would using uh, operators. So do you care to comment why then doesn't mining kind of take the lead? You know, why do people look at Google as the leader in autonomous vehicles? Shouldn't people be looking at Rio Tinta as the leader in autonomous vehicles? Yeah, they should. I, I, I have no idea. I, I, I mean, I, I guess everybody wants to uh, invent 
their own sort of story. Um, I, now, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, driving a, a vehicle where you've got pedestrians and traffic lights and a whole range of things, I mean, yes, it, yes, it adds complexity. Mm-hmm. But the starting point is certainly what the automated haul trucks are doing at Rio and BHP and FMG and Hancock and, and, and elsewhere. But I guess I always find it really interesting that, say, if I was Rio Tinto and I developed this technology that I was using on my operational mm. site, by allowing, I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but allowing someone else to license that to build upon, mm. maybe I could take it then to the fact that my workers could travel from the camp to the mine in autonomous vehicles as well, because that would be a relatively controlled setting as well, aside from the occasional kangaroo that tries to hop across the road <laughs> or something like that. Which you'd probably still hit even if you're driving. Yeah, no, look, you're, you're right. And, and that, that would be a relatively simple sort of example to, to automate. But, I mean, you've also got to focus on, well, what, what is the business of mining? And mm-hmm. the business of mining is sort of digging holes and shipping ore, you know, all around the world. It's not actually selling technology or sort of helping a Google uh, develop an automated vehicle. You have expressed the point that I was trying to get to at the end is that as mining, we have a fundamental product, which is that we have to provide resources and minerals for the current society and economy Mm. that we have. But surely we would maybe get some social credits for trying to utilize this technology out. Maybe the average Joe person on the street wouldn't just look at a mining company as someone that just digs stuff out of the ground and then ships it to China. They might see another different part of the, the organization or the industry then as well. Yeah, sure. And uh, I mean, a lot of people don't see what the value add that, that mining companies actually do make. Yep. Um, you know, there was an article in the paper today talking about the uh, community investment mm-hmm. by the mining companies. I'm chair of uh, Royal Flying Doctor Service and we've just introduced two new jets which halve the time to get patients down from Kununurra and, and the Pilbara. And that's been supported and funded by Rio Tinto. So, I mean, and it's a great and wonderful thing that uh, mining companies do things like that. Mm-hmm. And they do it right across the spectrum. Now, the average Australian doesn't know. People living in, in the mining communities, they know. But, yeah, it, it's a hard ask to, to get the message across. Is that something you struggled with when you were at Rio? Did you find that it was hard to kind of get your message across? Yeah, look, look I think there's been a shift. I think uh, 25, 30 years ago, mining companies would work with governments, mm-hmm. federal governments, state governments, even local governments, at sort of getting the whole range of approvals and permits and what have you. And the community basically went along with it because it was jobs and investment and you know, housing and retail shops and what have you. Communities these days, very, very different. Mm-hmm. Communities are looking for, for a community value add and uh, that's incredibly important. So, so what do you think has happened? Is it that the society's values have shifted or has the industry not kept up with their investment in this place? Oh, no, no, look, I think the industry has. Okay. But, but I think there's, there's been a shift in, in sort of attention and focus. Yeah. Okay. In, in a way, it sort of happened gradually, you know, like the frog in, in boiling water. Yep. Uh, it's happened gradually and the mining companies have responded. But now it's, it's fully on. I mean, you, you've got to convince the community first the government second. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think, you know, the whole concept of business providing social value almost first or stakeholder yes. value first before yes. like shareholder value, I yes. think that whole dynamic is now changing where societies are wanting companies to be a lot more honest about what social value do they produce. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and I mean, the environmental area is, is a really good example of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at Rio Tinto, we reduced greenhouse gas by 38% over about a six-year period. I mean, that was actually stunning. Seriously, seriously good. You know, converting power stations from diesel to, to gas. and mm-hmm. you know, I can remember changing all the light bulbs at, at Rio Tinto Iron Ore and the Pilbara and people would laugh about sort of going to LED sort of you know, high, high, high energy lamps. But the fact of the matter is it, it reduced a megawatt of power. Yep. The impact was huge. I think this is a point that I did want to raise is that in your tenure as CEO, you know, you did make some bold calls in the fact that you took Rio Tinto out of coal. You made some quite, I think, poignant points about the carbon emission trading and how mm. a company should deal with that. And you know, in a lot of ways, I think you were probably one of the first people to kind of put these things out as a mining company, as a resources company, really. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of really, really exciting things that, that, that we did. Mm-hmm. I mean, turning around a company, that, that, that was a huge sort of uh, mission and endeavour and, and that involved every single person in the company. But certainly uh, recognising uh, environmental uh, performance and, and improving that, yeah, that was a key issue. But, but even down to things like uh, mental health, you know, we, we developed a mental health program here in Western Australia way ahead of, of sort of other operations. Yep. That, that was important. I... I was on the Ministerial Council for Suicide Prevention and you know, a lot of the work that they were doing, Rio was actually leading the way. I mean, we, we were actually implementing it ahead of that council. But it was good because it, it sort of tested you know, a lot of the theory, it tested a, a, a lot of the proposals from, from uh, that, that council. Did you have any opinions against what you were doing? No, look, I think people understood sort of the, the, the value add associated with it. And uh, you mentioned sort of non-union. I mean, Rio Tinto has got union and non-union sites. So, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very broad church. But I can remember Greg Combe coming and, and visiting the iron ore operations in the Pilbara. Greg at that time was the head of the ACTU, Australian Council of Trade Unions. And, and I said to him, look, we can go anywhere. You can talk to whoever you want. You can talk to them one-on-one. It's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he, he came and looked around and spoke to a whole range of people and uh, when, when we were flying back in the plane, I said, well, you know, how did it go? And, and he said, oh, look, <laughs> it's, it's very impressive, very impressive the scale, very impressive the engagement, involvement of employees. It, it's, it's very impressive to you know, see how keen people are. And I said, well, look, this is a success case for the ACTU. And he said, hang on, run that, run that past me again. I said, well, you're looking for employers who pay well, who, who really focused on, you know, conditions of, of uh, the workforce and so on. And that's what we do. We're non-union, but boy, we've got to work hard to continue to be non-union. We, we've got to work hard to meet the needs of our employees and show that we care. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's an obvious part of the equation that people don't understand. So we, we implemented a, a, a bonus, an incentive across the board. Every single employee at at, uh, at Rio Tinto Iron Ore, 
And I can remember the first year that, you know, we'd introduced it and it was going to pay out. And one of our finance, oh, 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 it's terrible. We're, we're going to pay out on the incentive. I said, I'm jumping for joy because <laughs> it, it meant that we've achieved, you know, we've achieved <laughs> our targets. And, and guess who helped us do it? All of the people who are going to get the bonus. That, that's important. It's, it, it's an important mentality that it's a team effort. It's not the people in, in the sort of the corner offices that are doing it. Mm-hmm. It's the people driving the haul trucks, the operating the shovels and, and the ship loaders and you know, the maintainers and the schedulers and everybody. And I think that's a quite an important point. I mean, what you're kind of talking about is that if you have this scheme, that's mm. kind of a way of essentially incentivizing people to buy into the vision yes. that you're trying to put at the front of everyone. Yeah, well, when, when I was CEO, I came out with a, with a number of what some people call relatively trite statements. I wanted people to spend our money like it was their own. I wanted the people to act as owners. Well, 38% of the employees own shares, so it wasn't a tall ask to, to actually uh, stretch that to people basically operating mm-hmm. as if they owned a business. And it was fascinating as I moved around the company, visited sites, I was staggered at the number of people. It's, well, you know, we, we had this project come up, but, you know, I, I turned it back because if it was my money or if I ran the company, I wouldn't do it. I mean, it was really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. But it was very funny also because uh, th- there was a, a mining conference in, in Barcelona and, and uh, each of the majors were there and Ivan Glazenberg from Glencore sort of put up a chart that you know, showed ownership of, of the company by uh, basically management. And uh, you know, for, for Rio Tinto and BHP, you needed a microscope to sort of see what percentage of the shares were owned by management and, and employees. Glencore, you know, of course, was an IPO. And, and uh, those guys, I can't remember, they owned about 20% of the company. Mm-hmm. So with, with their chart, it, it, it sort of just went off the scale. And everybody laughed, you know, because uh, they were taking a mickey out of me. But I laughed as well because it meant that Ivan didn't actually get what I was saying. I wanted every employee to act as if they're owners, not just the senior management. Senior management will always act as their owners because they're the ones that are making the investment decisions. They're the ones basically uh, running and setting the direction for the company. Yeah, that's right. But I wanted everybody to operate in the same way because setting direction right through the company was was very very important yep. and and you know the turnaround that we achieved you know pulling 6.8 billion dollars out of our cost structure that was done by everybody it, it certainly wasn't done by me you kind of brushed on this topic so when you took over Rio Tinto there were obviously some reasons why the company had gone down this path where maybe lost control on some fundamental processes inside the company what was the reason for it? Arguably, we went through a commodity boom that we're probably not going to see again very soon anyway. So was it just that that inefficiency crept in because of that? Yeah, look, I mean, certainly people were pushing tons and it was sort of tons at any cost, given that the margins were, were so good. But it basically came down to the fact that, that uh, the company was living beyond its means. Mm-hmm. The, the, the year before I, I uh, took over, we spent $17.6 billion on capital. My first year, we, we spent 10. Now, growth is good. Growth yep. does actually make money for you. Yep. But our debt was just spiralling out of control. We, we had $22 billion of debt and it was growing at a fast rate. And uh, we just simply couldn't afford to actually pay that. 
Um, I, I can remember uh, at the time we were turning around Rio, I, I uh, became very friendly with Alan Mullally of Ford. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he, he and I caught up and, and we both decided that, that uh, the accountants were actually responsible for a lot of issues. And one of the issues they're responsible for was not letting the organisation actually know how they were going because the, the accountants were worried about insider trading and a whole raft of things. Well, quite frankly, if you're running Rio Tinto, the guy or lady who's running the, the shiploader at the port, they know how the company's going because they can actually <laughs> see it before their eyes. You, you don't need to sort of see a set of accounts. But not providing the feedback to the organisation as, as to what's good or bad, that doesn't help. Um, I remember when I took over at Rio, we were forecasting quarterly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's terrific in a very stable environment that you're in 25 years ago. But when you're in a very volatile environment, you know, like we are at the moment, mm-hmm. even forecasting monthly was a big issue. And uh, I, I can remember the accountants again, God bless them, saying, oh, Sam, I, our, our systems won't allow us to uh, for, forecast monthly. And, and I said, well, why? Most of our costs are fixed. And they go, well, look, Sam, let, let me give you a, a, a bit of a lesson about you know, it's variable and, and fixed costs. And I said, oh, labour. So are, are we going to hire drastically more people next month? No. Are we going to pay them more money? Well, actually, no. Oh, so you're telling me then that labour is a fixed cost in the short term. And they sort of sat back and thought about it and they said, well, yeah, you're right. It is in the short term. <laughs> and it's it's same with a whole range of input costs that in the short term they're fixed. Well, cut a long story short, you know, within a couple of months, they very proudly came to me and said, oh, look, we're in 5% of accuracy with our forecast. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, that's great. Yeah. It was no surprise to me. I, I think the forecasts are important. I, I shouldn't really say this, but last month's accounts, it's gone. You can't do anything about it. Yeah, okay, there might be a trend. There might be something there that you can pick up. But it's a whole lot of spilt milk. You, you, you can't go back and do anything about it. But this month or next month, you can do something about it. And, and having accurate forecasts of, of where you're heading... And understanding what the variables are that actually help you make it, yep. that, that's really, really important. I think the other thing, you know, just, just sort of having another, another go at the accountants, <laughs> and I'm sure you'll get lots of emails about this, yeah. um, operating for profit and loss. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's what people have in their annual set of accounts and it, it's what, uh, I don't know, government agencies and what have you look for. Mm-hmm. But cash is actually what drives the business. P&L has got so many accruals and depreciation or raft of other things that it no longer actually represents how the business is actually tracking. Yeah, that's what I know. Cash doesn't lie. It's either there or it's not there. Yep. And, and by measuring cash, you take also into account some of the balance sheet items that otherwise aren't included in terms of management focus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I mentioned in, in uh, our earlier conversation about Six Sigma, work in progress, working capital. Mm-hmm. At, uh, at Rio Tinto, when I took over as CEO, we had $6 billion of, of working capital. Mm-hmm. Certainly sort of stores and workshop and what have you, but there was a heck of a lot of material, finished product and, and work in progress. And, and that, 
that material was actually overhanging the market. I mean, we had to borrow the money to actually fund the $6 billion. Yeah. Well, guess what? We got it down to $1 billion. We took $5 billion out of the working capital. Now, if you take the Toyota production system, it actually also means that you've got to be far, far more efficient and effective to how you run the operations because you no longer have that safety stock. So it comes back to the point that I was making earlier about having in control and capable processes. If you don't, you'll fall over. On my first working day uh, in the London office, I sat in on a, I think it was an investment committee meeting, and I, I was just staggered at how dysfunctional it actually was. In the rush to grow, the checks and balances that the company had been famous for had basically disappeared. The head office review groups, the commercial review, the technical review group, they'd actually lost their power. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we didn't have an aggressive hurdle rate for projects. Okay. You know, basically, if you achieved a positive NPV, then your project went ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good, and technically that, that should work. But I got the group to analyse all of our projects over the past 10 years and to work out you know, which were the good projects and which were the bad. Good projects were always good projects. So you know, if, if you've got a, an internal rate of return of you know, more than 15%, the project's going to be good. Yep. The projects with an IR are less than 15. People pulled over the line with some very heroic assumptions. <laughs> yeah, you know, oh, right. yes, we'll be able, once we're operating, we'll be able to pull 20% out of our cost. And oh, the capital budget, you know, that's, well, yes, that's very conservative. You know, we, we should be able to do it for 25% less. <laughs> and, and of course, when reality set in, yeah, that's <laughs> the right. people didn't achieve it. Yeah. And, and, you know, the bad projects were bad projects. We set targets, hurdles for uh, IRR, and that really sort of, you know, removed the chaff. And that was important. Yeah. And obviously we reinstated the commercial review group and the technical review group. They were important checks and balances. Project champions are great. I mean, they're really, really enthusiastic, really motivated, lots of drive and energy. But you need somebody in the cold light of day to look at a project and say, hang on, hang on. Is life really like that? Yeah, that's a, you know, if you're part of a project team, it's easy yes. to convince everyone around the table this is a great thing and we should go ahead with it. So, I mean, th these were part of the, I mean, the strength of Rio Tinto that, that uh, you know, our investment decisions were incredibly sound. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the rush to grow, a lot of that had been sort of brushed to one side. So, you know, as I say, day one, it became blindingly obvious to me what I needed to do to actually turn the company around. Okay. Now, my wife says I'm not allowed to say that because she says that it's very egotistical. But, <laughs> and maybe it is, but it turned it into a very simple solution rather than aiming for something that was going to completely turn the company upside down. From like an outsider's view, your tenure at the company, it was very clear what you were trying to do. And mm. I think that's always a good sign. I don't know if you were that clear in your head about what you wanted yeah. to do but I think from the outside it definitely looked like there were some very clear goals that the company was trying to meet yeah no no we the team were very clear on what we wanted to achieve yeah and uh, you know I, I guess the only thing that we didn't see was was just how quickly mm -hmm. we, we could actually achieve it how quickly we could turn the company around and uh, you know all, all the heady targets that we set mm -hmm. we actually beat those which was great so you obviously had a, a, a partner in crime as well, Chris Lynch. How yes. much was it actually involving Chris? Because it sounds like a lot of the, the issues that the company had were around the financial side or the financial management. 
Yeah, I mean, Chris was a real gem. I, I mean, he was, <laughs> he, he was sitting on the board and uh, somebody suggested to me, well, maybe Chris is interested in, in becoming CFO. <laughs> and my eyes sort of lit up. Because he, he understood it, he got it. And uh, it certainly helped for the two of us to be able to sort of work through a number of the issues that uh, I mentioned earlier. And uh, Chris was able to help me at a working level sort mm-hmm. of achieve that through the finance area. But also importantly, you know, at the investment committee and, and other areas where, where we were making some pretty heady decisions. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, it's a team effort. You know, people think, oh, well, you know, you've got a CEO, he's in the corner office or, or she, and, uh, you know, they're, they're doing it all. You're actually not. Mm-hmm. You're actually working with your executive committee team and each of those people are working through their staff to get things done. Mm-hmm. And Chris was really, really important. You know, Chris and I were totally aligned with what actually had to be achieved mm-hmm. and, and that made it easy. You know, I can remember Chris and his team set up a weekly review of cash fantastic i'd sit in on it but they'd actually drive it and uh you know it was a stand-up only meeting which meant that it was short <laughs> and uh we, we just go through every aspect of of cash generation mm-hmm. and it was fantastic because you, you could actually see there on a weekly basis how the company was actually operating it was really really good i want to dig into this a little bit because this is something that we talked about in our pre-interview conversation mm. You, know, you were in charge of a really big company. Mm. The kind of normal conversation seems to be that it is impossible to change culture in big companies. It's like turning the Titanic around, all of these kind mm. of things that people say. Uh, so how did you do it? How, how do you go about changing an organization like Rio Tinto? Yeah, it's certainly consistency of, of purpose and focus. You know, what, one of the traps for a CEO is that... Uh, he or she sort of thinks of some bright initiative or fad or whatever and, and goes ahead and, and sort of implements that. Well, of course, within an organisation, as you say, culture change mm-hmm. takes time. And the organisation, six months, 12 months behind the CEO who, who sort of set the direction. The trap for a CEO, for, for she or he, is, is the next idea, the next project, the next whatever comes along. And, and they announce that to the organisation. Well, the organisation is still trying to sort of digest and implement the first initiative. Yeah. Plus produce iron, iron ore or whatever, be safe, you know, reduce cost. What? So, so, you know, what do they do? You know, it's like a juggler who's, who's juggling, you know, a number of balls yeah. or priorities. And you throw another ball in and guess what? The juggler drops a lot. And, and that's what can happen in an organisation if, if you don't realise that an organisation can only concentrate three or four things at, at once. They can't go beyond that. And it's incredibly important that you have consistency of purpose, that you do engage, that you do communicate. Because I think that's a point that you made about the team aspect, which I think is quite important in that in big organisations, your ability to interact with all parts of the organization are somewhat limited. Mm. You can't really get FaceTime with every employee. You're not necessarily going to get FaceTime or an engagement with every single working team or group or management group or anything like that. So you do actually need that level below you or the couple of levels below you to empower them to kind of take your message. No, exactly. Because uh, when you're CEO, you're, you're a long way removed from the business. Yep. And it's important that uh, you know, people at the shop line, front line, 
that they hear from their management because they're the people that they regard as as being in charge because they are. Mm-hmm. And communication was really, really important for me to ensure that the management throughout the organisation was actually empowered, did actually understand what we were trying to achieve and they could see that we weren't jerking them around with sort of chopping and changing and making different decisions and whatever. There was huge consistency in terms of what we were doing. Yeah, like I asked you the question earlier, how do you do it in large organizations? And I think your concept that you have to be very consistent in your messaging, I think Mm. is probably the point there. Because in big organizations, because you have more opportunity to do a lot of things maybe you do i think too much and you know that kind of muddies the water where people go last month we were doing this this month we're doing this next month it seems like we're going to do something else no that's exactly right and then people's response to that and it's quite right is well i won't do anything because there'll be a new initiative next month and the old initiative will go out the window but it is important to simplify the business down to the variables that, that are really really important Mm-hmm. and sort of take away all the clutter, take away all the things that, that don't really matter. Put, pushing down decision-making, empowering management to, to actually make wise decisions mm-hmm. as if they were spending their own money and as if they owned the business. Mm-hmm. You know, it was no good me being smart after the effect and, and saying, well, why would you invest in that? You know, we're getting out of coal, you know. Sorry, I forgot to tell you. You know, I mean, people needed to understand sort of basic fundamental things like that otherwise you'd have people making decisions that weren't good decisions so did your time in rno kind of give you that apprenticeship in some way to kind of handle how to get your message across into a big organization i think i think i actually picked it up way back in in my time at, at general motors holden hmm, okay. i i led the team that restructured holden back in 1986 and that gave me a very good feel for how a total business operates and what are the critical drivers. It also enabled me to see how out of sync people could actually be mm-hmm. if they didn't see what were the important drivers for, for the business. And, uh, you know, people build little empires and people yeah, construct yeah. silos and, and yeah. what have you. That's all and, the malice and, of corporate culture, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and they think, oh, that's great because my little area is going to be so incredibly efficient. But they don't actually realise that maybe fine for that area, but if you look at the big picture, it's actually not helping. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and with the GMH uh, picture, they'd gone from being the first producer in, in Australia to being about 17% of the market when, when I was there. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of areas, they, they had facilities for 100% of the market. <laughs> and, you know, the guys running these areas, they, they felt terrific because they had so much spare, redundant equipment, you know, if sort of anything happened, oh, I'll just turn on machine 55. What they didn't realise is that, that the business was actually carrying the overhead associated with, with having 100% of the market. Yeah, okay. You know, I mean, a lot of these examples that you're saying, this is kind of the original question I was trying to get to is that I think your time in the automotive industry, you saw the industry kind of go through these perhaps steps or you saw mm. the results of them or the challenges of what you would have to face as you mm. go through. And I think that probably put you in pretty good stead when finally the mining industry decided to kind of go through that. Yeah, I mean, understanding the drivers of, of a business, what, whatever the business is, mm-hmm. that's seriously, seriously important. But making sure that, that the teams that are actually running it, they understand what the drivers are too. 
And I think it's really interesting you say this, like as businesses get complex, you need to focus probably on very few things. Yeah. The normal kind of way down the rabbit hole is that, well, as things get complicated, we got to have more variables. We got to have a finger on a pulse on as many variables as possible. But in fact, it seems like it's actually the opposite that you probably want to do. No, no, you, you're exactly right. There are a limited few things that actually drive a business and make a business successful. It's not a whole myriad. Of, mm -hmm. All you're doing is clouding the issues and, and distracting people's attention. But the things that you measure, the targets that you set, it's absolutely critical to get them right. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I talked about the foundry business that, that I had when, when I first joined uh, CRA, Southern Aluminium down in, in Bell Bay. Mm -hmm. And they had a range of measures. And one of the measures were the number of successful castings out of a die. Mm -hmm. Well, that's terrific. Only, of course, their in incentive was to get as many shots out of the die as they could, <laughs> not to stop when they got the first unsuccessful casting. Yeah, makes sense. So they just keep producing rejects and putting them through the system and they get picked up down the system. They wouldn't get picked up up front. And uh, I can remember we were going to sue the, uh, the company that provided the dye technology because, you know, we, we couldn't get good castings out. I removed this measure. If the dye didn't work, it was sent straight back to dye maintenance. Those guys got it back at the speed of light. And, and guess what? We resolved the problems ourselves because they suddenly understood what was the driver for their work. Yeah, that's right. And their driver was having the dyes properly prepared so that they would actually produce okay castings every time. And, you know, it was incredibly simple, but it was incredibly powerful having the wrong measure. Yeah, yeah, that's hard. You're kind of summarizing that old adage, like, you know, do less but better, you yeah. know, like focus yes, on yes, less, yeah. and but do it much, much better. Yeah. So you talk quite passionately about your time at uh, Rio Tinto and obviously mm. in the industry. So specifically with Rio, do you have any regrets about your time? Is there something that you didn't get to do that you wanted to do desperately? Look, I think employee safety was always an enigma. It was something that we put in you know, a lot of time and effort. We didn't always get it right. And, and uh, you know, the consequence of a failure was huge. Mm -hmm. you know, it was likely to be a fatality. Every time you analysed it, you know, the writing was on the wall. You know, if people had only studied or analysed what they were doing, they'd realise all those lucky near misses and lucky escapes yeah, and what have you. Yeah. Sooner or later would catch up with somebody. And, uh, you know, it, it, don't get me wrong. I mean, the safety has improved out of sight. Mm -hmm. But there are still these random events where there's a huge consequence. Is that part of the push that you particularly wanted to get around automation? Yeah, I mean, aut automation was certainly part of it. You know, I, I was fascinated when uh, we introduced uh, automated trucks at our first mine and, and the people working there said, from a safety viewpoint, they prefer an automated truck. And, yeah, yeah and, of course. And, and, well, yeah, like at that stage, I was sort of thinking, gosh, you know, they've come a long way with that sort of thinking. But uh, the truth of the matter was, you know, an automated truck it is consistent you know what it's going to do and also it has a whole range of sort of safety devices that will shut it down if uh, something does go wrong something gets in its path whereas uh, you know haul truck driver you know she or he can fall asleep at the wheel and, and yeah that's uh and never knows what happens the, the other driver for automation is quite frankly uh, 
young people these days want to live in a capital city. Yep. And uh, it, it just means that it, it's getting harder and harder to retain, um, I guess, you know, a third of the workforce, which is currently constantly under churn. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a third of, of long-timers will be there for, for ever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another third that's, that's pretty sort of stable and consistent. Then you've got the third that just keeps changing. Yep. And, you know, a, as you know, a you know, study of millennials tells you that, you know, these people will have two or three careers. You know, they, they won't, they don't have the, the loyalty or, or whatever. So automation sort of answers that. Well, it's from a safety viewpoint. It, it was just practical. I mean, I think the fact that the industry's gone down this scale thing about, you know, bigger and bigger operations. You know, RNO went from whatever it was, 100 million tons per annum to 300 million tons per annum probably in your tenure. Well, actually from 60 to uh, to 320. But yeah, anyway, who, who's arguing? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, whatever that is, five-fold uh, yes. increase. And if you're going to increase the business by five-fold, then the amount of people that you need, part of that that people problem has to be kind of solved by automation. Trying to attract that many people continuously using the same method that was probably used 20 years ago, I think it's going to be really difficult. So when you say, I think automation was a practical step, it totally makes sense if you kind of look at it from that part of the problem. Mm. You know, the other part of it is that workers will probably want something different. Yeah, no, look, I think that's right. And as you automate, you actually, you change the jobs. The jobs become, well, more demanding, higher complexity and more challenging. Yeah, that's hard. I ju- just, just sort of coming back to uh, you know, things that migrated from manufacturing to mining. Mm-hmm. And the, the remote operations centre, that was part of it. I was quite surprised when I joined uh, CRA that the planning and scheduling wasn't really a function that, that was valued. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the car industry, you know, when you're running an assembly line, you better, you better have good planning and scheduling. And uh, we started sort of working on that, creating a central planning group, which actually led to the remote operations centre. In other words, putting all the people who were sort of focused on making things happen, putting them all in one room. Mm -hmm. And it was incredible that, that, you know, for the first time, people running the rail, they could either see that a mine wasn't ready to receive the train or they could see that uh, the stockpiles at the port were full and what are you going to do with a train? Yeah. So it gave huge line of sight to the organisation, but it also increased the discipline and rigour in terms of planning. Mm-hmm. I can remember I took a very senior guy from Toyota around the planet. Now, I did apologise uh, before we started that, well, some of what you see will look like the Toyota production system. Mm-hmm. And and we went round and, and he had a look at it. And... Uh, it was a Toyota production system basically operating on steroids um, be, because uh, the Toyota production system has, has people manually sort of running control charts. The remote operations centre does it in real time across the entire organisation. Mm-hmm. The planning people and scheduling people could see right in front of them whether the material coming from the five mines was actually within the control limits or not. And they could see what they had to do to, to correct it. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the tour, the, the, uh, the, the chap says, look, Samsung, you, you've actually taken the Toyota production system to the next level <laughs> and, and uh, we'll take it back to uh, Nagoya. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are you, uh, is that something that you're proudest of? Is that the fact that the company got this remote operation centre up and running? Look, I, I mean, I think the thing that, I mean, turning around a company, that was important. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the, <laughs> the company could have gone down the gurgler with debt if we hadn't turned that round. Yep. But through the process of, of innovation and technology, we created a tagline, the mine of the future. Mm-hmm. And I was the only person within the company who didn't know what it meant. And I have well-meaning people sort of, well, yes, it means automation, it means remote operation, it means all of that. And, and I said, yeah, yes, it does. But who would have thought 15 years ago we would have been doing what we're doing today? And what do you think we're going to be doing 15 years from now? Yep. I, as CEO, don't want to define what mine of the future looks like because I don't want to limit people's vision. I want people seriously to take all of our operations to the next level mm-hmm. using the technology that, that will exist in the future. Yep. By the way, uh, mining engineers will hate this, but uh, a mining business is really a logistics business. Yep. Yes, you do mining up front. And you Sam, need... Sam, you have slagged off accountants <laughs> and now you slagged off mining engineers. No, no, You're well, going to have no friends left in this no, industry. I, well, no, I know, but, but uh, you need to see it all in, in the context. Yep. I mean, okay, if, if you're mining diamonds, then yeah, okay. The mining part of it is going to be your fundamental critical part and the diamonds you can take out in the, in the back of a ute. If you're mining sort of iron ore, copper, a whole range of commodities, then the logistics of actually moving that from one part of the world to another, that becomes absolutely fundamental. Yeah, that's right. And I think this is a part of the story that not a lot of people know, that mm. there are other industries that look at the r and business in WA as this really good logistics business and yes. how it's set up, how it manages all of these different inputs, outputs, all of these things. Yes. You gave an example, how companies coming in, but there are obviously other companies that look at this and go, well, actually, mm. this is the level of control we would like to have on our, on our business. I mean, I, I, I thank God that Charles Court was wise enough not to actually uh, make the decision to invest in the rail, the power, the infrastructure or the mining operations. I mean, okay, the government couldn't afford it, but it actually meant we actually installed fit for purpose. Yeah, that's I, right. I, I can remember, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago, somebody suggested that we sold down our power station and I basically said over my dead body. <laughs> you know, be, because power companies have different levels of service provided. You know, we, we needed sort of... 98, 99% availability because every 1% that you lost meant that you lost, I don't know, a million tons or maybe more That's right, yeah. of product that you could never, ever, you know, win back. It was yep. gone for all time. Yep. So availability of the power station, availability of the rail, availability of the port, absolutely critical to run a, a, an efficient and effective operation. Mm-hmm. I think it makes total sense mm. from that point of view when you think about it that way. So the obvious question there is, why were you interested in becoming CEO? Because I didn't notice that there was something that you said where you didn't immediately say yes to the role when you were offered it. But in reflection, you actually took the role. Were you interested in becoming CEO? Did you see it as a challenge? Yeah, look, at, I mean, it all happened very, very quickly. My wife and I were in Singapore for a weekend and I got a note come to London for an emergency board meeting. Mm-hmm. It, it was actually quite funny because I, I had to uh, buy a suit because... Uh, I didn't have a suit in Singapore and, and <laughs> I'd never been to a board meeting where you turned up in fancy dress. So, uh, and when you're handsomely proportioned like me, buy, buying a suit in Singapore is not an easy job. So, so uh, I'm glad you're making that joke. No, so. I know. So I, I, I had to go to a 24-hour tailor. But yeah, look, it, so it was all, all a bit of surprise. You know, there was a decision that, that the, the current CEO would, would be departing. I can remember being called into the chairman's office and, and he sort of told me that uh, 
Tom Tom would be leaving and and that they'd be looking for a new CEO and mm-hmm. and I was sort of going through my head you know who who on earth is that going to be yeah. and he said well, well, we, well these actually, are my options we, well, actually we, we'd <laughs> like you <laughs> so yeah look I, I it it was a big decision but it was also a very quick decision I, mean, I certainly had to ask my wife I mean you know mm-hmm. dropping everything and and going to London wasn't quite on our agenda. Um, and, and I had a lot of heavy engagements, community engagements, involvements here in Perth. Yep. You know, part, part of my theory that you don't just write checks, you, you actually need to be involved and engaged. In, yeah, in, you have to have some skin in, in the game, in what, essentially. What, what yep. you're doing. And then, of course, you know, well, can, can you actually uh, you know, achieve the miracle and turn the company around? I guess one of the questions I've always wanted to ask, I know I can't ask you a lot about your time or how your tenure ended at the company, but I want to, I guess, ask a personal question. Were you disappointed in how you left the company at the end? No, absolutely not. No, no, look, I, I, I was overjoyed that, uh, you know, I actually got the chance to be CEO. I was overjoyed that in the three and a half years I was CEO, we actually turned the company around. As I mentioned, we reduced the costs by uh, 6.8. We reduced the working capital by 5 billion. We reduced the debt from 22 billion down to 9.8. I mean, I wrote down all these numbers and I think what you did was incredible, actually. And in a very short amount of time as well. I, yeah. I don't think you like you and your management team get enough credit for the fact that you kind of put the blueprint that a lot of other companies copied after you guys. Yeah, no, well, that, that's true. But you know, I'd turned 66. I'd basically helped turn the company around. There were a lot of young youngsters who were sort of very ambitious to uh, to get the role, and uh, no, it was it was absolutely fine. Okay. So so I have retired, and and you know for all those sort of out there who are a little bit anxious about retirement, let me tell you, it's fantastic. <laughs> seriously, seriously good. The only thing is that I'm perhaps a little too busy, but you know, very very diverse life. I was going to say, in our pre-interview, the number of things that you told me you're currently doing, I, I think well, I think you should probably go and take a CEO job just to relax a little <laughs> bit. Well, it, it's it's a very varied life. A bit of charity, a bit of church, a bit of arts, and a couple of businesses. Fantastic mixture. Every day is different. Uh, and, and they have all these serious, serious issues that if I compare them to Rio Tinto, I, I think, you know, get a life. <laughs> but, I mean, they're serious to them. And, yeah, yeah, that's and, right. And I need to give them sort of the, the time and credibility and what have you. But uh, at Rio, every day something drastic went wrong somewhere in a business. You know, you're operating 30 countries, yeah, 65,000 yeah, people, some government, some weather event, some maintenance. Every day something would happen and... And you'd almost set your watch by it. Well, you know, we haven't had the disaster today. Oh, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> and having a good team, having a strong team was important. You know, you, you could sort of set the context, set the effort and let the experts actually resolve it. For a time, it's great. It, it's really, really good. And it gives me time to do things like this. I think, uh, <laughs> like even uh, the conversation we had before this interview, I think you have a very healthy perspective. So I think the type of stuff that you're doing, it's, mm. it's great for those organizations to have you involved because I think the perspective you bring, like you said, everyone thinks the sky is falling down and actually <laughs> having that healthy perspective yes. to go, actually, maybe not. No, maybe, maybe not maybe, today. Maybe not. Maybe yeah, tomorrow. Maybe not. Maybe. And, and it's also good sort of having had a, a very active working life to be able to be physically seriously giving back to the community you know that that's really really good i think that's great so we always end our interview with two questions Mm. so the first one of them is 
when it comes to mining or the resources industry, what is something that you think needs to die? It can be an idea, a concept, a behavior, something that you think we should jettison out of the industry. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. And, and uh, I, I, th I think we need to remove the not invented here syndrome and be far more broad-minded in our outlook, looking to what's, what's happening elsewhere or, or looking to what, what are the key issues of the day. If I think about my time at Rio Tinto, we were very focused on community issues way before they became the imperative that they are today mm -hmm. because we could see that they were going to be important and we, we could see that improving efficiency, reducing environmental uh, footprint, improving safety, all of these things were, were going to be critical to us in the future. And as I've already said, a lot of the ideas we actually took from different areas. You know, automated haul trucks, well, guess what? They're automated tractors in farms way before automated trucks. Yeah, good point. Um, remote operations centre came out of oil and gas, not out of mining. And there's sort of a range of things like that where you, you can actually, by keeping your eyes open as to what's happening elsewhere, you can actually pick it up. I mean, the point you're making, I think, is quite good. You can sit there trying to think of new ideas or you can go out and find ideas that you can adapt or adopt into your way of working. Sure. So conversely, and last question, what is something that you think we should maintain at all costs, something that's fundamental to our DNA that we should never lose? Yeah, well, it, this will sound rather funny to you after my comments about mining engineers, but uh, ensuring that there is the... That the, the training, the development of the people with the fundamental mining skills is important. And you also mentioned the sort of cycles that mining goes through. Mm -hmm. and generally, uh, mining has a habit of sort of dropping its education and training and what have you during the, the downturns. They regret it as soon as the market picks up again. Somehow, mining has got to remove those peaks and troughs when it comes to developing sort of the, the critical skills that it needs. I think that's a pretty good spot to end on. Thanks good. a lot for joining us, oh, well, Sam. Thank you very much, Harvard. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and Ahmad. This episode was produced and edited by Ahmad. If you want to find out more about this podcast, check us out on explorationradio.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And we're even on Instagram. And if you like this podcast and want to help out, well, there's two things you can do for us. Give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And consider supporting us in producing more of this content. You can find the details on how to do that on our website at explorationradio.com support. Until next time, let's keep exploring.